we are starting a little mini series within a series this week. We're going to have three sermons in a row that have to do with what Deuteronomy says about power. And starting with power this week is kind of perfect. As so often happens, the real world has a way of producing exactly the kinds of dynamics that the Bible is speaking to, giving us a perfect object lesson of the good news that, in this case, Deuteronomy would like us to embrace. Or rather, the world has a way of showing us the darkness that Deuteronomy is offering an alternative to. And that alternative would be good news if we were to trust what God is saying to us. We've all been, I'm sure, following the events of Russia and Ukraine this week. Some chunk of those listening might remember doing nuclear drills alongside fire or earthquake drills in elementary school. Others haven't been alive during a time when World War III seemed like an actual possibility. And yet here we are with Russia reminding those who would interfere with their ambitions that they have a sizable nuclear arsenal on high alert. To put the events of this past week in terms that we would recognize if you've been with us for Jeremiah or Matthew or Revelation, Vladimir Putin is what happens when a nation worships the idols of power, militarism, and nationalism. As we've said so often, the road of putting our trust in idols leads where it leads, and where it leads is to death. Always. Putin has been explicit over the past decades that his grandest ambition is to recreate a Russian empire that he and many of the Russian people believe is their right. It's interesting, isn't it, how every nation thinks their birthright is whatever the high point of their nation's power was? No one's ever like, you know, we were way out of our league when our power was at its peak. Thank goodness we're so much smaller and weaker now. Because that's not how the idol of nationalism works. That God demands more and more power, bigger and bigger territory, greater and greater wealth, higher and higher status compared to the other nations, because the God of nationalism says that the only way to be safe is to be the grandest, the most powerful, the strongest. The God of militarism tells us that the one way to be secure is to have the largest and strongest army, that we need to continue expanding our military expenditures even when we already outpace the whole rest of the world, and even when we're cutting back in other areas of our national budget, because those other nations, they're gaining on us. And what would happen if someone caught up? If someone else's military was stronger than ours? Who would protect and provide for us then? What we're seeing this week is where the path of putting trust in those idols leads. I've seen articles recently about how Putin has been quietly remaking the Russian military over the last several years because it had grown a bit shabby and obsolete. I've also seen articles about how Comrade Putin officially takes a salary of something less than $150,000 or so, but that most intelligence experts estimate his actual wealth to be in the $100 billion range of what he's siphoned out of the Russian economy secretly or maybe semi-secretly. I'm starting here because Vladimir Putin offers us a very convenient contrast to the words Deuteronomy directs towards the king. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Only let him, the king, not get himself many horses, that he not turn the people back to Egypt in order to get many horses. When Yahweh has said to you, you shall not turn back again on that way. And let him not get himself many wives, that his heart not swerve, And let him not get himself too much silver and gold. And it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingship that he shall write for himself a copy of this teaching in a book before the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it in all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God. To keep all the words of this teaching and these statutes to do them so that his heart be not haughty over his brother. And so that he swerve not from what is commanded right 
or left. So not too many horses, which, by the way, would be a stand-in for military might. Horses and chariots were the tanks of the day. Not too many wives, which was probably mostly about political alliances that one could enter into through marriage. Pretty sure it might have been about sex, though, too. (laughs) Not too much silver and gold. So, again, limits on military power, limits on political power, limits on sex, limits on wealth. One of the scholars I read for this joked, why even be king then? (laughs) (laughs) the idols of militarism, power, sex, money, they demand more and more. And the inevitable constant temptation for someone with power, the inevitable path they will take without a constant conscious decision to trust in Yahweh, trust in Yahweh, trust in Yahweh alone, is that they will use the power they have to get more and more so as to appease the gods who demand more of them. This is what Putin has done, just like so many powerful people before him. But in fact, we don't need to look to Putin to find a worthy example of this inevitability, because Deuteronomy itself offers us a great one. The book of Deuteronomy was probably compiled into its final form sometime around the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians in 721 BC, perhaps even as late as when Jeremiah was alive, when Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah was destroyed by Babylon in 587 BC, and the people were taken into exile. At some point around that 150-year period, earlier material was repackaged into the final form of the book that we have now. And wait, why were there two kingdoms in the first place, a northern state of Israel and a southern state of Judah, instead of one united kingdom? Well, the blame for that falls at the feet of basically one man, who held the kingdom of his father David together while he was alive. But when he died, civil war broke out. In the Bible, it tells us why. This is from 1 Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which Yahweh had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to Yahweh his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil, in the eyes of Yahweh. He did not follow Yahweh completely as David, his father, had done. So there's many wives. Check. And here's a kind of long chunk from 1 Kings 10, but it makes the point so beautifully I couldn't resist reading it all, so bear with me. But this is 1 Kings 10, starting in verse 14. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minus of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests, with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. 
All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were all pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Haram. Once every three years, it returned. Carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. The royal merchants purchased them from Q at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. So there's gold and silver and horses. Check, check, and checkmate. Where did all this wealth come from? Well, some from tribute and from other nations and from trade, like that passage said. But there was also this. This is from 1 Kings chapter 12, after Solomon's death. Solomon's son Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Solomon's wealth, his wives, his horses, they were paid for by the forced labor of what Deuteronomy so pointedly calls his brothers. The people of Israel who he, in effect, enslaved, metaphorically took them back to Egypt, back to slavery, so that the gods of wealth, sex, and power could be appeased. Deuteronomy 17 is intentionally looking back. Hundreds of years after the people of God had collapsed into civil war and then been destroyed by Assyria and by Babylon, it's looking back to say, if only our kings had done what Moses said. If only they had written out by hand. And I love this detail. The king himself is supposed to copy out the whole of Torah like a schoolboy doing an old school lesson and then read it every day. And why? Because those with power will always use that power to benefit themselves unless they constantly remind themselves that Yahweh is their God and that they owe nothing to the gods of wealth or power or militarism, that those gods are empty, that there is no life there. And the surrounding verses of Deuteronomy, we see commands uh, to those with other sorts of power as well. Judges are commanded this in chapter 16, verse 18. They shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not skew judgment. You shall show no partiality and no bribe shall you take for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the innocent. Justice, justice shall you pursue. And then the priests are addressed in chapter 18, where they are told that they are not to hold any land for themselves, but will be instead dependent on the support of their brothers and sisters. Several of the commentators I read pointed out that this would be counter to the reality in many nations at the time, where the priestly class was able to leverage their status 
to build up wealth and power for themselves outside of their religious functions. And this is, in fact, what we see happen in Israel. And by the time Jeremiah and the prophets come about, they consistently confront just this wealthy priestly class for their failures. In other words, Deuteronomy demands that those with political, judicial, and religious power in the people of God, that they would use that power not for their own gain, not to accumulate more for themselves, but for justice and for equity. This is extremely unnatural, of course, to use power not for your own benefit, but for the good of all. Many people talk the talk initially, but few are able to walk the walk once they actually have power and the gods are demanding more. And so Deuteronomy reminds to keep returning to Yahweh, to constantly return to the true God, the God who sets people free and who does not themselves show partiality, the one who uses their own power, not for their own benefit, but for the sake of the world. The people in power in Israel, as our time in the book of Jeremiah confirmed, if you were with us for that, they failed miserably at this. They went after the very gods Deuteronomy warns against, not just Molech and Baal, but nationalism and militarism and wealth. I'm afraid this also exposes the tragedy that the church has largely failed at this too. That many Christians, in air quotes, have fallen under the sway of, among other things, a political movement that promises power and a leader who will fight for us and protect us from losing our power. The ones who seem interested in using what power they have to increase the power of those like them at the expense of the widow, the orphan, and especially the foreigner. Deuteronomy makes clear for us that whatever or whoever those so-called Christians are putting their trust in is far closer to the gods of Vladimir Putin than to the god of Deuteronomy. But this has personal implications for us too, of course, (laughs) that we too would use whatever power we have, not for our own benefit, but for justice and equity. That our power might bring the life and joy and abundance of the kingdom of God to those in our circles. It's a reminder that those of us with more power need to guard ever more diligently against the inevitable result of losing sight of the reality that Yahweh is our God and no one else. I was talking to a mom of one of Riley and Peyton's friends at the park this week, and this mom's very into social and racial justice. She's worked for nonprofits in those spaces, and she was saying how disillusioned she is by the reality that she found in virtually every organization that she'd been a part of, where it seems that even organizations that start from some higher purpose, the cause of justice in one form or another, eventually become more about protecting the organization and those within that organization than about the cause they were supposed to be about in the first place. She said, I just don't feel like joining anything anymore because every organization seems corrupt, self-absorbed, demanding ethical compromise to even be a part of it. There are so many in our world right now who despair, like that mom, that every organization seems hopelessly corrupt. As readers of Deuteronomy, I think we are able to see why and to see the path forward to life that we might be a community that offers good news to the world by being a community that embodies the values of the kingdom of God, the one place where power is used not for my own benefit, but for the good of all. Our world is hungry for that gospel. And Deuteronomy invites us to live in it and through our community to witness to the reality of Yahweh, the one God who gives up their own power 
to bring life to the world and invites their people to do the same. May we be that people.